welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. We are now at episode 10, episode 10, episode 10, How the Time Travels. I'm your host, Joe Robinson, and I'm joined as ever by Mr. James Spender through the power of the internet, still not recording in the same room because of social distancing and because any meeting between the two of us is actually over 30 people. James, how are you? Over 30 people? Can't even have over six people now, mate. Yeah, but whenever we meet, we have an entourage of people. Now that we have this podcast, we have sort of people that dress us, do our makeup. That's true. Hair. Refer to us as the talent. Um, I'm fine. I'm I'm very well, thank you, Joe. Uh, a little bit buzzy from too many coffees this morning. Recalibrating a grinder. Anyone out there with a coffee machine knows what that's like. Um, other than that, I've been very much enjoying uh, the bits and bobs of the Tour de France that's been fed to me through various mediums. Yourself being one of them, a very knowledgeable source you are for me joe um it feels like i don't ever have to watch pro cycling or pro sport in general i can hang out with you and you'll tell me anything from who won the snooker world champs to the darts through to the 3 p.m at aintree that's true and it was tiger Rock. <laughs> um anyway so we've got a good we've got a good episode lineup in fact we've got Eurosport and cyclist magazines felix slow join us to talk a little bit about the tour de france what we've seen so far, the effects of COVID on the race, uh, who the coolest rider in the peloton is and some other stuff. But we're going to start off, as we always do, with some stuff that we like and some stuff we don't like. So James, has anything in the cycling world caught your eye? Any new bikes, any new equipment that you've seen at the Tour de France? You're like, oh, I love a bit of that. Well, yeah. Uh, raced by Israel Startup Nation is the new Factor Ostro which is kind of airified. It looks a bit similar to a lot of other bikes, big down tube, but it's just got such cool paint. So it's got this kind of uh, carbon lacquered effect finish and then this amazing kind of metallic font that says Factor. Anyway, it's a really cool bike. I can't do it justice by trying to describe it. Look it up, Factor Ostro. And in terms of personal cycling, I'm still doing quite a lot of that. And I'm weirdly, I'm going faster. I'm definitely going up in weight. Lockdown is not helping out with that. So I don't know where this extra speed is coming from. Well, I've been thinking to myself, how am I? I'm doing my standard training rides, and Strava is telling me you're trending at the highest speed ever for two of these different loops. One's 50k, one's 65, and by like a whole kilometer an hour average speed wow. extra, which is a lot. The only thing I can put it down to is tyres, so running low pressures. This is a new thing. I know we've been banging about pressures for ages in cycling, but really low pressures. So I'm talking like 50 front, 55 rear. I think, in theory, it's only supposed to work on the tubeless setup. And this is something that Zip has done a lot of work with, and they reckon that it can save up to 50 watts, which I think is just crazy. But in terms of my numbers... I'm definitely not getting fitter, I'm getting getting heavier, but I'm riding faster, and the only thing that I can discern from, you know, the only variable that's changing is the last two test bikes I've had, have had tubeless tyres and I'm running them at very low pressures, so go figure. Maybe it's all in my head. Well, I think so, I'm going to continue to ride all my bikes at 110 PSI. Well, um, good for you, Joe. I'd, how about this, how about in the next fortnight before we... Uh, reconvene next time you just do me that favor 
just run your tires a little bit lower on a, on a on a couple of times on your local loop and tell me what your average speeds are because mine as i say low pressures my speeds have gone up significantly all right i'll do that just for you though james thank you so go on then joe tell me tell me what, what what's been catching your eye in the world of pro cycling and personal robinson cycling i've noticed that there are some new shimano unbranded wheels being used across the entirety of the peloton a lot of teams are actually using those from Ineos to Jumbo Visma. Uh, we know little about them, but they look like probably a new version of the C35s and the C50 tubular, tubular wheels. Um, so they'll be exciting to see. They released a new S-Fire shoes as well, which look pretty trick, that the likes of Primoz Roglic have been racing in. Um, but the big thing that caught my eye was actually uh, Julian Alaphilippe and Sam Bennett, who raced with the Koenig Quickstep, they wore the yellow jersey and the green jersey, respectively, during this race so far. Uh, and for doing so, the team actually fitted them with special yellow and green chains, James, which I thought looked really cool. So, um, obviously, they ride on the S specialised S-Works Tarmac SL7 that was released a couple of months ago, the new incredibly fast bike that's also light. So, their bike that they race is basically predominantly black, little to no colour on it. But to sort of mark the fact that Alaphilippe was in yellow and Bennett was in green, they treated their Dura Race chains with ceramic speeds, uh, UFO racing chain lubricant wax that had been given sort of a colour dye added to it, which basically made their chains bright yellow and bright green. And I just thought they looked really lovely and a, and a really classy way of signifying that they were in the leader's jersey of their respective categories for those few days. A lot of riders go quite garish and would go all yellow bike or yellow, you know, yellow helmet and yellow bib shorts. But they just were quite subtle in that they had yellow bottle cages and a yellow chain. Um, you can do the same if you want. You, If you were inclined to get yourself a red chain or a blue chain to celebrate, I don't know, your love of blues, um, you can buy, you can buy ceramic speeds, UFO racing chain with the little colour tinge to it, and but it will cost you £139. Oh. that's how much that Lou chain loop costs. Yeah, that's, it's expensive. That's a lot, isn't it? And I wonder how often they're going to have to change those chains at the Tour. Do you know what? I came across a really good stat in terms of like what they do, because obviously Tour de France riders um, in their service course, in their van, have all kinds of tubulars, wheels, all these spare parts. Your average team apparently goes through 100 rolls of bar tape in a three-week Tour. And they change the bar tape on average every four days for a rider. That's pretty, that's a lot, isn't it? Imagine doing that. would really annoy me as a mechanic. Last job every day, like, oh, I haven't bloody done Egan's bar tape, have I? Bar tape's a horrible job to do because it's so difficult. I find, I find it one of the most difficult things on a, on a bike to do because a lot of bike maintenance stuff is very um, paint by numbers. If you follow a process, it will work. Whereas bar tape is, there's a knack, there's an art, there's a massive art to it. Yeah. No, um, especially if you use like pro logo stuff that says pro logo on it. If you can't get that in line, it's actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's something I don't like is logoed bar tape like that. I don't want to see logos. I don't want to see offset logos on bar tape or white on a black, for instance. It just looks, it just high, it highlights my bar taping deficiencies. <laughs> I think that's what it is. You can see the lack of symmetry. Um, but you mentioned there a, uh, a rider who won yesterday. So today is, um, is is Wednesday. Yesterday was stage 10, and that was Sam Bennett, who after nine years as a pro, now in his 10th year, 
finally won a stage of the Tour de France and it meant a huge amount to him. And he, he cried a lot in the interview and he did that you know, heart, the real lump in the throat moment where he just says, I'm really sorry for crying. And he was like, don't be sorry, Sam. And everyone, you know, you can imagine this, the, the incredible scenes. In his incredible for him because he's, he's been to Lantern Rouge at the Tour twice before and, wow. you know, finished last place in general classification. And I guess the sprinters, they have quite a short, quite a small sort of expire, they have sort of an expiry date on them. So it's probably a clicking tock to get that, stage win at the tour which is such a a big thing for any rider but specifically sprinters because it's such a big thing to win a stage at the tour so it was it was lovely to see someone so emotional in victory crying but that's one of the things that it just got me thinking about when we compare sports to sports and the thing that is lovely about cycling that i just don't think you get in that many others is just that humanity it's something that you've pointed out a lot to me um, over the last couple of years with at the Tour de France is the way that, you know, of all the riders, Thibaut Pinot probably encapsulates that the most. And it is, I mean, I can already see, I, we're, we're on Zoom and I can see Joe's face lamenting the uh, ebb and flow of poor old Thibaut. So tell me, I mean, you wrote a really good article about it this week that I'm just going to plug on your behalf, mate, because it's one of the best things I've, I've read on him and by you on the cyclist.co.uk website. But what prompted you to write that article? Just the constant reminder that he is a human, that he's just a mere mortal. Cyclists are put on this weird pedestal of being superhuman. And, and what they do, and what their ability to race over three weeks and to ride how they do over mountains, cobbles, through wind, is superhuman and it's something to behold. And you often forget that they're actually just normal people that are really good at what they do. And with Pinot suffering with a bad back at this year's tour and, and losing a lot of time uh, the back in the Pyrenees at this race last year, he was, I would say, the best climber in the race at the 2019 Tour de France, but then had a knee injury. And we all remember in the Alps, him riding along, crying with a teammate, had his arm around him and then, the video of Mark Medio sort of telling them that, you know, you have to continue, you have to keep going, Thibaut, it will work one day. And the year before that, at the Giro, he gets to the penultimate day on the podium and then his lungs fail on him and you see him sort of minutes back from the back of the peloton coughing up, surrounded by teammates. He's just a constant reminder that cyclists are human and that they have emotion and that they are allowed to share these emotions on the bike. And, and because we're often used to people like Peter Sagan, Chris Froome, Primoz Roglic now, who are, who are very good at hiding their emotion, despite it being a very emotive sport, a very demanding sport where people are pushed to the limit mentally and physically. Yet at the end of the day or during the race, these riders are able to be so composed in their comments after, which I guess is what sets them apart as true, true champions. And then with people like Pinot and also someone like Julian Alaphilippe, another Frenchman, they wear their hearts on their sleeve. Yeah. And when times are good, they're happy and you can see it in the way they're riding. When times are bad, it everything kind of falls in on them. And I just, I like to see that in a sport. I enjoy to see somebody who's living the emotion. And that's why I'm such a, a fan. I'm such a soft spot for Pinot because I also think he's, probably the best climber in the world 
when he's fit. Yeah. I don't think, I think there's very little, very few people that can actually match him. And when you have a roll call of victories like he does on climbs like Alpuez and the Covadonga and um, the Tourmalet, that's proof that you're a world-class climber. And that you, when it, when things are right, things are so right for him, but just so often so things are wrong. And yeah, that's what prompted me to write that piece because, you know, apart from that, I think the race has been pretty dud so far. We're going to talk to Felix Lowen in a minute. Mm. And actually there's been, it's been a race of few attacks so far out of, it's very cagey. There's little time gaps. There's not much going on. It's a, and the Tour de France has definitely become a race of, fine margins in the last few years you look at the time gaps for victory they're not huge like they used to be when it used to be sort of 10 minutes of points um it's all very calculated and who can take a risk here or there and someone like Pino is the opposite of that and that's why he can go from being the best rider in the race to then being two hours behind in like two days (laughs) (laughs) but it does I do wonder if it's in the nicest possible way if it's like a French thing to have, you don't, if you win, you win big. And if you lose, you you spectacularly lose in a great flood of sentiment and emotion. And it's happened, you know, Raymond Poulidor, the eternal second. Um, Bernardino, a weird anomaly, a very stony-faced man, but also encompassed something very French about him. Jacques Anquetil, like very flamboyant. Um, and right back to this uh, fantastic rider uh Rene Vieto who just popped into my head when we were thinking about people who are crying because there's a really famous picture that was taken in 1934 Tour de France this is way way back and he's this young 20 year old rider was is, is sitting on a dry stone wall by the side of the road with his bike to his right and then uh, a mechanic holding a spare wheel and there's no to be no front wheel in his bike and he's, he's got his head in his hands and he's just weeping and it's a really, it was a famous picture that ran in Le Keep um, in the auto the next day. And it made him a star in France. People just loved the fact this guy had failed as a young guy. And he was riding at the point in that stage in virtual yellow. And his this is back in the day when he had, tra- um, when he had uh, national teams, not trade teams. So he was riding for the French team. So his, uh, the team leader, um, Antonin uh, Monnier, was, was up the road. Uh, sorry, behind... Um, behind uh, Vieto and Vieto heard via uh, another rider um, that he had his team leader had punctured so he turned back up the climb that they were to say or the mountain they were descending rode against the peloton which apparently you could do back in those days and found Monnier and gave him his bike or gave him his wheel and and thus gave up the potential yellow jersey and Monnier didn't eventually win that year's Tour de France so it wasn't all in vain, but it made this guy a hero, and the French love love that sort of thing. I don't think we appreciate how much pressure must be on a French rider's shoulders for, to win yellow. You know, the the most the best comparison I can put it to is like when we see England go to a football World Cup and just the complete and utter razor like laser like focus that is put on that team to succeed. Yeah, and ultimately. It's often focused on a rider who isn't the best in the in the race. Like the England football team are not often the best team in a tournament, and very, it's very 
few times where you could actually say, ah, oh, that French rider going into the Tour de France can be considered a favourite. There's always riders that are better than them, but they're expected. They're expected to succeed. And then when it doesn't go right for them, there must be such a, that overwhelming, tense anxiety that they're holding in themselves because every morning the keep is putting them on the front of their newspapers, assessing every single move that they're doing at race. When it eventually does go wrong, it must just all come out. And it's just an overflow of emotion, you know? So, welcome on to the show, Felix Lowe. How are you doing, Felix? Columnist for Cyclist and Eurosports man in the know. How is this Tour de France treating you and how are you? I'm very well, yeah. We're halfway through now. Um, it's pretty pretty exciting. The, the tour we thought we'd never have. Um, I've been kind of following it, um, not from the office. The Eurosport office is still shut for all us mm. freelancers. So I've been following it, like most people, from home. Uh, kind of sitting up in the office watching watching the live coverage every day and doing kind of a live blog for, for Eurosport and then doing kind of report and reaction and different features and things every day. So it's pretty intense, but it's, um yeah, it's good that we're, you know, back in the saddle. So I think it's, it's actually, you make a point there, it's probably the weirdest tour to cover as a journalist ever because we have no interaction almost, even uh, for, even for those who are there representing us on the ground it seems like their interaction with the peloton and those within it is so limited due to covid and the circumstances we find ourselves in it's actually a i'm finding quite a unique tour in the way it's been reported i'm sure you'll agree yeah it's been very interesting I, the first day the first stage for eurosport it was a nightmare i remember watching the the live coverage and all the sound levels were out and nothing was in sync and you couldn't hear Jonathan Harris Bass, you couldn't hear Carlton, and Sean was kind of muffled, and well, yeah, that might just be Sean, but um, it was, uh, but it was, it was really, it's really different. I'm, I'm so used to, you know, I work from home a lot, so uh, going into the office to cover something like the Tour de France is normally my chance to actually come out of the shell a bit and to have colleagues and to kind of interact and to get into the spirit of things and you know with, with colleagues and what have you. But then this year it's all been just. From home and I think others have suffered too I mean you know Rob Hatch you know is doing the commentary and you know he's doing it from from his home in um in Mallorca uh, and you know people are doing it from all, all over and you, you think that everyone's on site um you're just dipping in but I think this year everyone is you know Orla who does the, the some of the kind of anchoring she she is um and the breakaway she's she's in the Netherlands uh, the guys in the in the studio for the breakaway are in Bath, I think. Yeah, you know, I would be jealous. World, so, uh, so. I would feel sympathy, sorry, for Rob Hatch, but I'd rather be in Mallorca than in uh, Osterley, is it, in West London or where? The, the... Yeah, well, no, it used oh. to be. It used to be Felton. I mean, this it used to be terrible, right next <laughs> to the Young Offenders Institute. Uh, uh, thankfully, we've gone up in the world. We're now, the, you know, since the Discovery buyout, we're we're in. Um, we're in Chiswick, which is all pretty swanky, um, in, a, in a very new state-of-the-art office. But I haven't really been able to enjoy that office. Still no Mallorca. But um, let's get on to the tour then. Let's start talking about yeah. the sort of big talking points. And we're not so much going to analyse the racing and who's doing what, but more just take out some of the interesting things that have taken our note. And I think we can all agree the biggest story so far has happened away from racing. That's been how the race and how sports dealing with COVID-19, the coronavirus... And the biggest 
piece of news was that in the rest day, the race organiser, ASO's Christian Prudhomme, tested positive for COVID-19. The race has been trying so hard to keep itself as a bubble. um, And on the the rest day when everyone was tested for for the virus, it was Christian Prudhomme and four team staff members from Coffee Disc, Mitchelton Scott, Team Ineos and AG2R returned positive tests. Luckily, no riders. But it does beg the question, you know, this was an inevitability, people testing positive during a pandemic. Should the race have ever taken place? We've sort of seen a circus of a thousand people travelling around from France, potentially carrying a disease around France, you know, if you look at it quite cynically. Um could was this bubble sort of circumstance always going to work should the race have happened i mean felix james what do you think what's your opinion well my my opinion is massively skewed by a paper i was reading this morning about the economic review of the tour de france and just how much money it makes so the tour reckons that for every euro spent in sponsorship uh, a sponsor is guaranteed 10 euros back and if you take something like the grand depart in Yorkshire in 2014, uh, Gary Verity, who organised it there, Christian Prudhomme's busy mate before he got cancelled, um, was was trying to ring fence £27 million worth of funding, which he eventually got, and that generated four times the income for West Yorkshire back in terms of all kinds of revenue, you know, from local coffee shops selling more coffees through to people uh, booking out hotels, restaurants, that kind of thing. So, should the tour have happened for the sake of the sport? Ultimately, I guess, yes. Mor- morally, I guess we, we're yet to find out. That would be my two cents anyway. What do you think, Felix? Yeah, I mean, you could look at it the other other way and say, considering how many people are involved, the fact that only five, albeit you know, <laughs> the figurehead of the race, <laughs> have, a, have tested positive is, is, is maybe a good thing. I mean, it's... It shows that it's not spreading as as, as much as it, it, it may have. Um, I think you know any positive is is too much. But um, you know Prudhomme was out of the bubble, and so he hasn't been in theory spreading it to um, other people. I mean, his job essentially is to shake hands and to hobnob and to meet all the local dignitaries and things. I mean, I imagine there's going to be a bit of a domino effect. Uh, you know. He shared a car with the um, the prime minister. Well, he's, he's just returned weekend, a so. negative test for COVID, so he lucked out. It seems and didn't contract COVID. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. I guess they kept their masks on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unlike some of the fans we see on the side of the road, although they've been okay, the fans. But I think again, it comes down to individual responsibility, and you know, there's always going to be some people who think, "Well, I'm outside. I'm standing at the end of my mm. driveway. You know, why should I wear a mask?" Um, but I think you know, I think. The show's got to go on. I think I'm I'm pleased the tour's going on, not just because you know it helps you know pay my wages, but just you know I think it's good for morale. It's good to have a live sport event going on. I mean, think how much lockdown would have been different. How much you know better for our mental health would it have been if we were all stuck at home, but we did have access to the three grand tours playing mm. playing off in the background. Uh, it would have made those days much easier uh, to endure. So yeah, I think it's I think it's a it's a Delicate balance, but having something like this, you know, for one, you know, when the Premier League started up again, it was good to have some football and something else to 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 listen to or to watch, which wasn't COVID related. And now it's the same as cycling. I think it's a good thing. I think it is a good thing, but the big challenge is is 
the beauty of our sport is that it takes player on roads that you can go and spectate without a ticket and you can go for free. And that's what we're seeing in a way with some of the fans not wearing masks. The reason that sports like football could return to that is because you can do it in this sort of dystopian future where there's no crowds and it's automated noises of people cheering and the life's kind of sucked out of it. And you can never really do that with cycling. So it was always going to return as it once was with fans. And I, I get the frustrations watching fans without masks getting sort of berated for not wearing them. And I do agree that they should wear them, but I believe that this was just always an inevitability. If he was going to run the race and it's a risky run. I did find it quite interesting actually, that I think it was 0.6% of the Tour de France bubble tested positive for COVID, which is, the same average of how many people in France have been catching the disease per 100,000 people. So it shows that actually the Tour de France is bang on average for what France is in terms of um, COVID rates. Well, maybe yeah, maybe that's the thing. Maybe this will be a perfect study for how COVID plays out in a kind of enclosed scenario of people, albeit very fit people. Um, but I, something I picked up on yesterday um, in some stories was the idea that if you... I didn't realise this. If... Um, Ineos or any of the other teams who have so far had a member of staff, not a rider, a member of staff test positive, have another person test positive in the next, is it five state or seven days, isn't it? Then they, they have to be withdrawn. Is that correct? I believe it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it's the, the two strikes and you're out kind of um, policy. I, I, I did hear that before the tour. Uh, and yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's within seven days uh, of of each strike. Yeah. Um, what I thought was interesting in that is that you can you can't swap in a rider, but you can swap in um, extra substitute staff. So does that mean Ineos has just got a bank of people all quarantining for the entire Tour de France, waiting in case a Swanee gets COVID and, and has to go home, and another Swanee has to come and take their place? Or would you, would you just not, if you're Brailsford, you just not risk that? Do you just let your team dwindle by one or two? Because you can't, you know, what if you brought someone in who then <laughs> came from, came from not in, not, wasn't in France, that wasn't in the race, and then brought it in with them? Like, that's a pretty scary prospect. Yeah. You'd be like that, the guy who thought he was patient zero, who came back from the Dolomites on his ski trip and oh, yeah. infected, you know, the whole of the UK. But I mean, looking back, <laughs> it probably was around much longer. But yeah, you wouldn't want to be that guy who was brought in at the last minute and then caused an outbreak that, you know, stopped. Egan Bernal winning a second tour. Um, yeah. Um, but moving on from COVID, because it'll be a shame if COVID, obviously COVID will dominate all the sporting events in 2020. That's just life. Um, it's probably worth talking about some of the riders that are in it and, you know, cracking on regardless of what's happening around them. Um, I've got quite a, just sort of an open-ended question that I want to put out there. And that is, um, is Team Sunweb's Mark Hershey the coolest rider in the professional peloton? Um, I say that because on stage nine to Laurent's, the day before the rest day, uh, the young Swissman went, spent, I think, 80 kilometres on his own in a break, only to be caught on 2K from the line. He then contested the sprint, lost out to Tejer Podokar. Um, but it was an incredibly impressive performance. And one of those performances that sort of remind us why we love cycling. Uh, and also, he looked incredibly pro when doing so we often talk about riders 
amateurs looking pro on a bike. I think it was Mark Hershey and the way he looked with these big sunglasses and he barely breathed riding up the mountains that uh, gave provenance to that claim. So is he the coolest rider in the peloton or is it still Jeffrey Soup from Direct Energy who has a massive beard? <laughs> Felix? Yeah, he, he did look good, didn't he, going up and then going down. God, his descending mm. was pretty hot in the mouth and he did that little bunny hop at one point over the road furniture just to shave off a couple of seconds um but i was yeah i was interested when you started this this thread i was like what's the criteria for coolness here uh, and then you know because he's not as as a person you know when you speak to him or when he's interviewed and things you know it's hard to tell with a mask but he's not like the, the edgiest or coolest person but he does he does look good on a bike i mean jeffrey soup on the other hand if you were interviewing him god that would be pretty scary. He reminds me of Drago <laughs> from Game of Thrones. He's like this huge guy, this massive. <laughs> I mean, he he does have uh, a wonderful, luxuriant beard. Um, that is the epitome of cool. But there are lots of other cool guys. I mean, in, in my head, you know, I think Kevin Rez is pretty cool. Daniel Oss. I might have cool. to contest that, um, though, Felix. Have you seen Daniel Oss's clothing line? I haven't, but now you mention it, I can imagine uh, it's, it's absolutely it horrific. It consists of T-shirts with lots of guitars, lots of bikes, and a lot of uh, rhinestone. So, <laughs> well, yeah. he, he is a rocker, isn't he? He, he plays the guitar and he he, he does like to mm. do the devil horns and things. And yeah, I mean, there's so many different kind of kind of cool areas that you could look into. I mean, we always thought Taylor Finney was pretty cool. He was kind of the geek chic mm. at EF education first and then um but then uran rigoberto uran he's pretty he's he'll pretty be even cool. cooler when he becomes colombian president yeah. eventually which i've been told is an inevitability and in so connected well before that yeah apparently iran is a, a very well respected man in colombia and will stand for office eventually. but he's uh interesting so. he, he's our um oldest rider jersey winner currently isn't he we were talking about this last time felix yes. so you've got the youngest uh, youngest rider classification, which is ultimately kind of null and void because all the young guys are going for GC anyway. So what's the point in having a white jersey? It'd be more exciting to have an old old man's jersey, and that would yeah. go to In a grey yeah, jersey, a silver silver jersey. jersey for the ages of. We'll, we'll throw Quintana in there, as we said before, because he looks so old. But basically, from the age of about thirty-two upwards, and Iran is in there. Is he thirty-three now? Is he older than that? But he's sitting fifth. Yeah, well, 33, that's interesting because um, Sam Bewley is 33 and he's making, well, he's, his debut's over, but he, he was making his debut in the Tour de France, age 33, which is quite cool. I mean, I think someone mentioned before the Tour about the white jersey. It, should, it shouldn't be for the youngest rider, but it should be for the, um, the best place debutant because then it can be like guys of all ages. Mm. I mean, it's, it makes it much more open and, you know, I mean, Bewley, I mentioned him, he, he actually crashed out yesterday. He broke a, he fractured a bone in his wrist, which is pretty sad. Um, you're, you're right, but, uh, though, there, yeah. Felix. It is the, the young jersey is completely redundant. It's so such a meaningless sort of competition anymore. It might as well be the yellow jersey at the moment. I mean, it's Bernal and Pogacar, you know. Yeah. And the, the amount of times, it's, actually, it's more common to see the white jersey on someone not leading the... Uh, that classification than it is to actually see it on the back of someone who is because but now last year obviously was the yellow jersey winner but then the, the jersey would have been passed over to the next person I think it might have been the tour or someone but um, 
yeah, it's definitely a, a not the best. And um, back to coolish. But it also it also means you on the final day you have to some poor guy has to ride into Paris in the white jersey knowing that he's not going to win this jersey. Yeah. It's just like <laughs> you can't even have all the like white handlebar tape and the white sunglasses because it's not your actual no. jersey. It's true. Or maybe they should make a rule that you can't win both. You can't be a yellow jersey and a white jersey winner. I don't know. But I like the idea of debutants. That's true. Because I think that would really give some good impetus to some some young, fiery riders. People like Hershey because Hershey is obviously a Tour de France debutant. Uh, there's other riders like Leonard Kamner, who's a really quality rider from Borough Hansgrohe, who um, I expect to do big things in the second and third week. He's been quite quiet. I think he had a crash. I think he's one of the many riders to crash from Borough yeah. Hansgrohe. Um, Back to the coolest rider, however, one man that's really caught my attention because I think he's got an amazing jersey at the moment, but I've actually interviewed him a few times, is Casper uh, Askreen of the Koenig Quickstep, the Danish champion. So he's a, a huge diesel engine who's sort of been pulling the peloton along for Sam Bennett, uh, the Irishman who won a stage yesterday, went into the green sprinter's jersey. Very emotional win for him. Um, but Casper Askreen is he's one of his lead domestiques. And um, for such a young man, he has, he's very, very wise, having interviewed him before. He's a, a very um, all-seeing eye. Um, and he's a lovely, lovely man as well. He sort of talked to me about um, where I should go if I wanted to go on holiday to Denmark <laughs> when I met him last. I got some information. I got some advice on where I should holiday. Where should you go? Well, he said just to stick to Copenhagen, really. He said that there wasn't much else around. It was... Clearly, yeah. He's one of his bosses, Brian Home, is a, a counsellor in Copenhagen, so he's probably got him <laughs> on the payroll as well. So, um, but another another thing that's also taken my to my sort of attention, and we spoke about before we got on this call, was um, the budding bromance between unlikely man, Yorkshireman Connor Swift and Pocket Rocket Colombian Nairo Quintana. Um, both are riding for the Arkea Samzik team. Uh, Connor Swift from Yorkshire doesn't speak a word of Spanish. Nairo Quintana from Colombia doesn't speak a word of English. Yet it seems like them two are getting on like a house on fire, which is a surprise because we've heard in the past from the likes of Alec Dowsett that Nairo Quintana is not the easiest of men to get on with. So, um, I mean, that's a, certainly a surprise relationship. And it and I think you'll agree, Felix, this is the happiest we've seen Nairo Quintana in since forever, I would say. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is we haven't really seen much of him, which is um which is very good in in in, in terms of you know his prospects, because you want to lay low a bit, you know, in the first week or so. And he's been pretty he's he's managed to avoid all the crashes, it seems. And um yeah, he's uh maybe Connor Swift has, has made the difference. Maybe he's got this kind of right-hand man who can guide him through all the, uh, the damage and just uh, keep him out of trouble. Because, you know, it'd be interesting to see whether, you know, narrow man can come through and, and perform in the in the third week. It's, it looks like this race is going to come down to the, the third week in the Alps. The, the time differences at the moment are pretty pretty narrow. I mean, as we speak, it's, what, 44 seconds between the top seven or eight. So it's all pretty close. Um but yeah, Nero, uh, yeah, he does seem much more relaxed and maybe away from the kind of movie star kind of, uh, it was getting a bit toxic, wasn't it, with the whole kind of three-leader debate and like whether or not he should be there, whether it should be Al, uh, Alejandro Valverde. 
um, and then Mikael Lander. And there's there's always talk about Mikael Lander being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so it's just, yeah, Movistar actually have got really around oh, themselves as well. I've always felt that Valverde is a little bit of a black hole that saps the energy of all those around him in order to power himself despite being so old. <laughs> And now that he hasn't got Quintana or Lander there, he has no one to suck the energy. Oh, remarkably. From. And that's why we're eventually seeing time catch up with uh, old the green bullet. Yeah, I mean, the, lo- the lockdown didn't treat him well. I mean, he seems he's come back a very different he's ride, isn't he? He's riding as a 40-year-old should ride in the Tour de France, is what he's doing, yeah. But the remarkable yeah. Movistar is still wearing yellow helmets because <laughs> they're leading the team classification. How, how does this happen year upon year? It's it's a mystery. I don't think anyone actually understands no, how the team classification it. works. So <laughs> it's the first one to the yellow helmet bus. <laughs> there's like there's two there's probably two paragraphs explaining it, and then at the end, and after all this, Moby Star get to wear the yellow helmets because I don't. I, what they've got Enrique Mass and Valverde who are not on the top ten in GC, and then I guess Mark Soler's a while down. So I don't get how they're leading the team classification. Um, Back to Quintana and Connor Swift's relationship. I would like to see Nairo Quintana doing some interviews in English soon with a Yorkshire accent. I think that would be perfect. Sort of talking about his uh, whippet and Yorkshire puddings and test cricket as he's uh, learnt his English parlance from Connor. (laughs) I know. Well, you think the Arcare Samsic social media man could probably get on the the case. it's interesting that they're not the only kind of odd couple. You've got on um, EF Pro Cycling, you've got a very similar kind of setup between Hugh Carthy and Sergio, Sergio Higuita. You know, I don't think either of them speak each other's language. And, you know, Hugh... Uh, he's a Prestonian, isn't he? He's a Preston lad, yeah. So he's from the North Lancashire, I believe. Yeah. I can imagine some very kind of long, quiet conversations between the two. Lots of kind of um, hand gestures. Although... Cube does live. He, I think he lives out in Girona. He's a, he's a Pam, so he he lives speaks. in Pamplona. So yeah, Pamplona, he, oh, right. he was so, a he was a bit of a. We've spoke about him in the last episode. He was a bit of a an enigma in that he just sort of up sticks one day and moved on his own to ride with Carrao and uh, sort of lived in the Navarre region of Spain on his own, um, rather than course, yeah, following so the madding crowds to places like Nice. Uh, well, his Spanish is probably mm. very good then. But yeah, he is. A, he is a. Uh, he, I do enjoy Hugh Carthy because he's very tall and very rangy in amongst all those very small Colombians in his team at the moment. Yeah, so it's a nice contrast. Um, and he's a good rider to watch. He was doing very well until he. I mean, he was in a bit of trouble yesterday, wasn't he? He got sort of dropped off the back. Nelson Powell's. I think he got back in, but um, yeah, Carthy's having a good race actually at the moment. Yeah, yesterday there were loads of crashes and things. It was that nice stage on the coastline. Um, looked really pretty, but I don't think the riders enjoyed it much because it was... Yeah, well, I was surprised that the peloton came in at the fastest average speed because when you was watching the race, much of it was... It seemed like they were taking their time. You sort yeah. of get that impression when they there's about 10 at the front all riding in line and they're all chatting across the front of the peloton. Luke Rowe normally shouting at people not to ride any faster. That was quite a common theme of yesterday, yet yeah. on stage 10, yet yeah. they still came in at the highest average speed expected. Yeah, and they also finished up in a bunch sprint into a headwind at 60 kilometres an hour. Now, 60k an hour in a bunch sprint isn't, 
excessive, but in a headwind, and it was a windy, windy day yesterday. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. And it kind of paid, yeah. maybe uh, it's, it's fuel to this idea that the riders, I don't know what you think about this, Felix, from watching the tour this year and every other year. Do you think the riders are stronger because they've been at home on turbos? Their, their FTP is that much better. They are that much more powerful as riders. You see someone like Lutschenko, who, um, the Kazakh rider for Astana, you know, he's a unit. He's one of my favourite cool riders because he gives me hope that as a man who on a really good yeah. day I could get down to about 77 kilos, he's 74 and he can win uh, as he did in stage six up, up a hill. He looks like a track guy. So is he, is he you know, indicative of this idea that the riders actually are physically as strong, stronger than ever, but maybe might lack endurance? Who knows? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because we obviously spent lockdown on social media and we could see how these guys were doing. And um, I mean, I thought from what I was seeing, it looked like Chris Froome and Garrett Thomas would, were, were in a pretty good place. And then it turns out that that didn't transfer across into um, a kind of race scenario because they were so off it, you know, in the in, in, in the races before the tour that they you know weren't selected. Um, so I guess, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a difficult some. Some riders might have overtrained. Perhaps they might be, <clears throat> they might lack some kind of race craft or race sharpness. I mean, we saw in the stage yesterday when, yeah, everyone was very strong, but there was so many obstacles and things. And obviously, you know, if you're training at home on a, on a turbo or on what have you, you don't you don't really have to think about that. And you know, runners were going down left, right, and centre. Uh, there was the wind to factor in. There was kind of more road furniture than a street sale in Holland. I mean, it was just, it was everywhere. Uh, there were central reservations all over the place. It was pretty dangerous, actually. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm surprised there weren't more complaints because there were, you know, just when things were settling, there'd be another another crash. Um, and, you know, you say these guys doing all, the, doing, doing, doing all their training. Imagine, you know, you spent three months at home getting yourself in good nick and then your race is ended because you've, you know, gone down because someone else is crashed and they've hit someone else and then they've hit you. And, you know, it, it's... I was surprised, actually, like you said. I, I, the only person I saw that was quite vocal about the course yesterday was Education First Team Manager, Jonathan Vorters. He sort of put out a message before the race saying that this was incredibly dangerous. Um, and actually, to be fair, Bernie Eisel commented on Eurosport after the race saying that the day after a rest day... Uh, and they've gone into such a stressful day with, you know, not only the factor of wins, but just how technical the course was. Was um, it, it does seem like this course, this this route for the Tour de France this year that ASO designed, which was they admitted was for a French rider, has is maybe not working potentially. I, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's sort of. I mean, it'll wait, we'll wait and see when it, the race reaches the Alps and the Jura Mountains later in the race, whether it's, you know, exciting. But there has certainly been, it feels like, a few more complaints than usual in terms of the course from the peloton and the riders anyway. Um, in terms of the, the freshness question, as you said, though, James, this race has seen a lot of riders, a lot of climbers setting climbing records as well. So uh, on stage uh, eight to Ludenville, um, I believe Tajek Podokar set a new climbing record on the Col de Perisud, um, which is, if anything, proof that the peloton are in fighting form and very fresh um, because obviously they haven't raced as much as they would usually before the Tour de France. 
I think the big telling factor, though, will be in the third week because none of these riders have raced over three weeks for a year. So I think the bodies may react a little differently when we get to next Monday's rest day and then we get to them final few days in the Alps. I think that's where we may see a few people crack. And when they crack, I think there could be minutes lost as opposed to seconds that we usually see. Well, I think it's, we, we you know, we've yet to see any any really big mountains. We had, we had like climbs from the outset, you know, around Nice and things that, that, that made it kind of quite interesting from a spectator point of view, not having these flat stages to kind of, kind of, kind of build it uh, us in. Um, but none of these climbs are huge. Um, there was a, a summit finish on, on day four and another one on day six and things. But again, you know, not over 2000 meters and, and, and nothing too testing. And then the Pyrenees were actually quite watered down. I mean, you mentioned the Parasord there, but then I read, I read also, I think it was Daniel Freed made the, um, the remark on, on Twitter that, you know, that the climbing record that was beaten for that particular side of the mountain was set in, you know, in, in a year when there was a severe heat wave. And so it wasn't a particularly fast record anyway. And so you've got to take these things into account. And, you know, the, the wind factor, I think it was, there was a bit of a tailwind when they were going up. And, but anyway, yeah, I think it is all building up to this last week. And, and you can't really judge a course until you've seen the whole race and, and, and how it all pans out, because a lot of the stuff they bring in early on is is so that you know it has a fact perhaps later on and um i mean it, yeah we've got the the massive central and the, and the jura mountains thing before we get to the um the alps i think is the the planche de belfield yeah the um, penultimate day time trial yeah which i mean on paper that looks like it's going to be great but then we just don't know who's going to be in contention because if the gaps are already two or three minutes and it's just a bit of a moot point isn't it but um but you know i'm hopeful i think you know we've still got the as long as the we're still riding in week three uh you know uh, well, that's that's a, yeah that's an interesting good stages point in the Alps. Brailsford, uh, a couple of days ago was kind of challenged on why ineos weren't attacking the race in the same way as uh Yombo visma for example and he kind of said you know it's a three-week tour you've got to get to the end but maybe it's going to be really sensible to have really attacked from the gun because we're not going to get past uh, midway with COVID, perhaps. Um, but just just in general, right now, we're going into stage 11 um, this afternoon, or well, <clears throat> uh, this morning, then this afternoon. And this is going to go out um, Thursday, so it will be stage 12 by then. Felix, talking to your future self, and you can, you can listen to this back later, what are your predictions? Uh, Whose who's podium... Uh, one, two, three. Who's going to fail spectacularly and in what way? And who's going to be a surprise? Right, so I think um, in no particular order, the podium, Pog, Rog and Bernal. I think those three are locked down. I think they, they're really, they're looking pretty solid. Bernal has been keeping his powder dry and I just think you mentioned there about Ineos coming good in the third week. You know, they're riding very differently. They're riding in a kind of similar way they did last year where they left it quite late as well but then they did have Thomas uh, and so it was a bit different last year but this year they're, they're all in for Bernal and, you know Carapaz who was perhaps the plan B he lost a lot of time early on uh, Sivakov did as well there was high expectation with him I mean, and Amador crashed a lot as well as Sivakov in those first days so they you know by maybe not by design but they've had to kind of uh, plan things a bit differently because they've had these crashes Um but perhaps they were always going to kind of try and 
come in, come good towards the end. Because we've seen when there has when there has been wind, you know, Luke Rowe's been there, uh, Kwiatkowski's been there. So they have been alert to these kind of flashpoints when they've had to be, but perhaps they're going to really turn it up, you know, in, in the third week. Whereas Jumbo Visma, we've seen a lot of them um, in their really confusing yellow jerseys. I don't want to get on an aside here, but I think maybe next year they should have to wear pink or like Anse or something. But um, yeah, uh, and Roglic, he's, he's looked very strong. But again, you know, is it is it is it too much too soon? I mean, it's um, he's been pretty good all, all season, all bit in this truncated season. But you know, is is, is he going to really suffer in that third week? Uh, Pogacar, I think he's just he's just pretty pretty solid all round. He's been very unlucky with with uh, mechanicals and he's had a few crashes and things, but nothing too serious. But he has had to fight back a lot. Um, but I think those three, if I had to put my neck on the line, I'd maybe say Bernal, uh, and then perhaps, you know, tomorrow he's going to crash out, but we'll see. But um, yeah, I'll say Bernal for the win, and then the two Slovenians either side of him on the on the podium. Uh, yeah, uh, what do you guys I, think? I think Slovenian pog rock is on the rise as a genre, but I can see... <laughs> It sounds like yeah, something Daniel Austin said. Um, lots of guitars and drumming. Um, I, I just have this, rock. this feeling and this just this weird feeling inside me that Primrose Roglic isn't going to win this race. It's just a bit too easy for him at the moment. And like we saw at the Dauphiné, the Dauphiné was a foregone conclusion. Jumbo Visma were dominating that race, and Roglic was cantering to a victory, then crashes on a descent and has to abandon and. We've seen Roglic before at Grand Tours look so in control, so comfortable, and then two days later look like half the man he was. The Giro last year, he really started to struggle when he was in pink. A few things went wrong for that team, and he ends up finishing third. Um, he obviously res- sort of rectified that in the Vuelta, but the Vuelta is a bit of a different race to the Tour. And I just feel like Ineos's experience just means so much in that third week. And I can see Egan Bernal and his very dodgy hair, new haircut sort of winning the race with... <laughs> without. I, I, I can see him ghosting to the victory like he did last year, almost not wearing the yellow jersey until the last day or the penultimate day. But one big attack on something like the Col de Loz, which is stage 19, which is a brand new mountain top finish that's incredibly hard. I can see him sort of just sneaking into the lead at the very last moment. I also think that experience pays off. So I can see somebody like Nairo Quintana, Roman Bardet or Uran also sneaking onto the podium. They've all done it before. They all know what it takes to race over three weeks. And I think one of them could just do that kind of uh, Heimer Zubeldia thing of ghosting and always being in the lead group, but never putting in the attacks, never really making any sort of fireworks. But then you get to Paris and you're like, oh, I see that Roman Bardet is still on the podium. Well, that was a good ride for him. Um, and I do think of the Slovenians. I think maybe Pogacar will be the one who finishes above Roglic. I think he's a man on the rise. I think he's got a lot of confidence and a lot less pressure. Roglic has got a lot of pressure now. He's in yellow. He's got the best team. There'll be a lot of leaning on that team who are very new to controlling a race unlike Ineos when people rely and look at Ineos and say okay you control this race they go yeah fine we've done it for eight of the last nine Tour de France's with success so it doesn't bother us whereas Jumbo come week three when George Bennett, Sepp Kuss are being told you've got to drill it on the front 
you know, will they be able to keep up? I'm not sure. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to go Bernal, Pogacar and Quintana as my podium. There you are. Nice. Well, I'm, I'm just going to back Nations. And it's quite easy, isn't it? We'll have, we'll have France on there, we'll have Slovenia on there and we'll have Colombia on there. Job done. That's who's going to be on there. And then of those three, I'm going to, and I'm going to stick my neck out and say um, Iran Iran, so good they named him twice, will have a step on the Champs-Élysées somewhere because his experience will tell out over this three weeks. Um, and then beyond that, you'd want, to have, you'd want to see someone from France at least, uh, yeah, at least uh, be on one of those three podium steps. So yeah, just picking up where we left off regarding what people are wearing, and you got jerseys of multicolours, and then you got Yumbo Visma confusing everything, wearing yellow jerseys in the midst of a race that sticks a yellow jersey on the on the leader. How about the fans? What are they wearing? They often dress pretty crazily by the roadside. What's the most ridiculous dress you've seen so far, Felix? Well, this is this is a bit of a boring answer, but I haven't really seen anything that's really jumped out. I mean, I, what, what, I'm pretty busy when I'm covering the race. I'm, you know, I'm typing the the live comments. I'm checking things here and there, and so I haven't always got my my eyes on the uh, on the on the fans. Um, but but yeah, I haven't really nothing's really we jumped out. I mean, has COVID <laughs> spelled the end for these like zany costumes? Um, Mercifully, we haven't seen any mankinis yet, but then we haven't been in kind of mankini Maybe it's a bit cold. It's September so, um, now. Maybe the mankini has uh, had to be put away because it's a bit later yeah. in the year. Um, Deedee the Devil's about, though. COVID didn't He needs to him. watch out. He's, he's, an old, still... he's an old chap. And he's been ill because he had to miss a tour once, didn't he, a couple of years ago because he was too ill to go. So, Deedee, do be careful. I thought he retired. Do you, I, think, um, I think for a while he was working for Wiggle. He's in quite a lot of adverts for the massive online retailer, so perhaps what, that's what he's doing. Or there's, or there's just multiple DDs. They just get a guy with a white beard. It's like Santa Claus. Anyone can be him. But you're right, DD is the kind of guy <laughs> who, would, who fits the kind of shielding criteria. You think he, he should probably be at home as opposed to like <laughs> hobnobbing with Christian Prudhomme and uh, doing his thing on the side of the road. You, it's come back to me. One costume. I remember I'd be going through some images on on Getty Images to find something uh, early on in the race, and one one took my caught my eye. It was a guy who was wearing nothing but a pair of briefs, and more than that, he had a kind of orange carrot or baguette or something kind of attached to the briefs, kind of hanging down oh, yes. in between his legs. And one one of the riders was going past a guy from. Uh, Israel startup nation, and, he, and you could see him like his head was like just staring. He was looking at this guy wearing these bizarre kind of aubergine <laughs> parrot kind of forget Brilliant. Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, one thing we have seen is, is riders wearing particularly stupid stuff. So we had, uh, was it uh, Alaphilippe's 80 grand Richard Mille yeah, watch? 80,000 yeah. pounds Richard Mille watch, which is loads of kind of punters pointed out, even though. Richard Mille, the, the watchmaker, says, oh, that's one of our lightest watches, you know, 74 grams. That's a piece. 74 grams is, uh, is a lot of weight to carry on an extra on a bike. Uh, and then who is it? Had the, those diamond-encrusted sunglasses? <laughs> and Alexander Kristoff was wearing a set of Cycon glasses that were diamond-encrusted and gold-plated and cost 6,000 euros <laughs> on the podium. Blimey. And there is... They've not worn them yet, but there's rumours that uh, either I think Pogacar and Roglic will be wearing a set of shoes made by Burt Composites 
Um, is it Burke? Burke yeah, yeah. yeah, and they're going to, I think they are sort of £1,200, £1,300. So they're not quite as expensive as Adam Hansen's Hansino oh, shoes. Oh, it's homemade, one of a kind. Yeah, car yeah. shoes. But £1,300 for a set of shoes is pretty pretty expensive. You could get a good few pairs of churches or Luke's. Oh, mate, £1,300 of Clark's, you could kit out an entire secondary school. <laughs> <laughs> but will they be allowed in the They're, classroom? That's a whole other podcast. We can talk about the uh, state of education and uh, in relation to COVID <laughs> in the UK. But uh, on, on sunglasses, I think Greg Van Overmark put something up on, on Twitter on the rest day. He's got some new, very garish, golden Oakleys. Yeah. Um, Compared very, himself very to James Bond. Very smooth and shiny. Yes, he did. I mean, that's a big, big step he up, is, isn't it? He is but, the um, most tanned man in the professional peloton, so if anyone's allowed to... Actually, who, who would be the best James Bond in the peloton? I mean, we, we, we mentioned Jeffrey Soup. He would be a very good bad. I can tell you who the best Bond baddie baddie would be. It would be Primoz Roglic. Stone Cold. He'd have been very good in the uh, the 1970s Bonds that were always fighting the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union. He'd have been a really good sort of cold-hearted yeah. hitman. Yeah, Christoph would be a good henchman, though, wouldn't he? He's a bit of a birdie yeah. chap. Um, the best Bond in oh, the professional yeah, uh, I think that's, I that's mean, one we'll have to throw out, though, have to think about this and, and throw it out yeah. to some listeners. In a dubbed... Um, Hispanic James Bond, I'd like to see Rigoberto Aran playing a sort of Hispanic hammers. A kind bond. of um, like a telenovela Bond, where Bond's consistently the guy that's cheating with all of the um, rich guys' wives when they when the guys yeah. go off to work in the city and he comes around to fix their dryers. But surely it'd be Demoulin. You've got to have you know the housewives' favourite. Yeah, he has got the strongest chin in the general. He's got, the yeah, he's got a well. good strong chin. Uh, he's got good hair. He's presentable. Speaks impeccable English, um, and could also. Yeah, he wears a tuxedo. He well. dresses yeah, in black that's and white a good point the because the the professional peloton is notoriously bad at wearing suits. So <laughs> you'd have to pick one of the guys who actually looks half decent in yeah. one. I always I always thought the Roman Kreuziger looked like um, Christian Bale. Um, to the extent that I, I thought that maybe like Roman Kreuziger's latter years, where he's been kind of a bit off the boil, it's just some kind of elaborate experiment, some kind of. <laughs> well, Christian Bale's known. He's Christian known Bell. for being very method. So. <laughs> well, exactly. Because who was it? Was it Wacken Phoenix who became yeah. a rapper for a few years? I mean, is is Chris is Roman Kreuziger an experiment by Christian <laughs> Bale, infiltrate himself into the peloton? <laughs> Yeah, but that's that's what I think about people like Greipel and uh, Lutschenko. They're made in laboratories in that behind the Iron Curtain, and they just get re- reeled out, reeled out to throw uh, throw bicycle pumps in Tom Demoulin's spokes. <laughs> um, Felix, thanks for joining us. I think we'll bring it to an end there. Uh, let you get back to your research as the tour is probably going to kick off again in a minute. Yeah, it's it's probably yeah, I've got to go and fire up the. Uh... The live coverage for stage 11. So, Felix Lowe, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much again for joining us, Felix. We were in the privileged position of being able to see him. He did look a little bit like he was in a library, and that's because he was. Lots of leather-bound books. But also, every time I see Felix, I'm struck 
by he's a good-looking fellow, and he looks like he could be related to Fabian Cancellara, don't you think? Yeah, there is a lot of similarities between him and Fabian Cancellara. Uh, they're very they've got quite a stony European face. Uh, the only difference being that Felix is what six foot six. That's he's a very tall man. He's a very tall man. Yes. And uh, Cancellara is, uh, for all of his many things, he's not as tall as you think he'd be. We've seen him, haven't we? We have seen him. We've ridden, me and James have actually ridden with Fabian Cancellara and we've both dropped Fabian Cancellara. Albeit, he probably wasn't making much effort as we were riding through Richmond Park. And I also... But there is, a, there is photographic proof. That's Yeah, there is photographic proof. And that was very nearly Fabian Cancellara's last ride because as we were heading back out of the park to, if anyone's familiar with it, Sigma Sport in London, there's a roundabout. And Fabian just cycled into the middle of the roundabout and stopped and just put his hand up like he was a traffic policeman, expecting all of the cars to A, know who he was, and B, to <laughs> cede to the fact there's a cyclist. It's like, my friend, you're, <laughs> you're in London and you're wearing a helmet and sunglasses and also no one in England really cares about you. So he had this standoff in the road with a woman in a Nissan Micro who furiously beeped her horn and eventually just drove round him. Uh, and he was left <laughs> somewhat with egg on his face. But there we go. That was a, that's a story for another day. But we've told it to you today. Um, I think that's everything for today, James. Uh, we have made some Tour de France projections that are probably not going to pay off and we'll have egg on our faces yes. like Fabian did yes. that time in Richmond Park. Um but we'll be back in two weeks with another episode um, and to talk more about cycling. I think we've got some really fun stuff planned, actually, coming up. But we're not going to say just in case all, all things go wrong. Exactly. Uh, we'll, just, we'll just leave you with that, the idea that good things might happen. And if they don't, you'll never know they didn't because you didn't know what they were. As always, please leave us a review on Apple let us know what you think of the podcast. Well, we had a lovely review the other day, actually, and it made us all smile. And in lockdown, we all need to be made to smile. Um, Lee Dixon, Ooh. Greg Wallace, if you're out there, do get in touch. Oh, go on. I do have, I've, we've got our first, someone has written in, Sarah has written in with a little, little tidbit from Greg Wallace. It wasn't something that she'd come across directly, apparently, but I think observed through the medium of TV. Great little line from Greg. It's not burnt. It's just enthusiastically crisp. <laughs> so I thought I'd read that out because that made me chuckle when, when we received that. So yeah, yeah any more of that, awesome. maybe just great Greg Wallace quotes that we can start into the show. Yeah, and then uh, we'll see you again in two weeks' time. And James, I'll chat to you in two weeks as well. Goodbye, dear Joseph.